Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. Last time, we discussed Wheeler's cavalry raid into eastern and middle Tennessee early in September 1864. Plagued with setbacks and misfires, it was largely misdirected energy, and ultimately amounted to little more than a sideshow to the main drama, as Atlanta finally fell to the federal forces under General Sherman. As we'll see today, now General Forrest will take the reins, literally, and this time the results will be dramatic and drastically different. On September 10th, 1864, the federal pursuit of General Wheeler effectively came to an end at the Tennessee River in Lauderdale County, Alabama. Wheeler's forces crossed at Cheatham's Ferry near Smithsonia, and Major General Russo declined to follow them any further, opting instead to return to base at Nashville. Ironically, as he reached Pulaski on the 12th, he received word from Major General Thomas via General Granger that headquarters desired Russo to cross the river and stay on Wheeler's heels. Russo responded, in short, that the situation had changed and no longer permitted such a movement. Quote, I telegraphed you this morning of my return from the Tennessee River, after having driven Wheeler across, am now in receipt of your dispatch of yesterday sent to General Granger, in which I am directed to cross the river and press Wheeler and destroy him if possible. General Croxton's brigade of cavalry is marching on the military road to Columbia, and will reach there this evening. Another portion of the cavalry is here, and the rest is at Athens or on the way there. I have no doubt you expected your dispatch to reach me when the command was together and near the river. As matters now stand, I deem it proper to await further orders." End quote. The lack of unity of his cavalry force, combined with the literal distance from the river, now meant the chance to realistically pursue Wheeler any further had passed. In light of what is shortly to come, which we will shortly discuss, it would have been better for Rousseau to just stay put at the river. However, as we saw last time, supplies were scarce, and heavy requisitions were already being made upon the local population. In any event, the immediate threat from Wheeler had passed, and it seemed perfectly reasonable to return to base, regroup, and let him be on his way. As Wheeler withdrew, however, Union commanders in the region did not breathe a sigh of relief, least of all General Granger. If anything, he appears to have been on higher alert than ever that the Valley of the Tennessee and the vital transportation network within it was vulnerable to attack. Wheeler may have been on the south side of the river, but he and Roddy were still well within striking distance, even as the Union forces largely recoiled, perhaps prematurely, to their original positions, as Granger here explained in his retrospective report on October 10th, quote, on the return of Major General Russo from the pursuit of Wheeler, and after the receipt of the order for the return of the troops to their stations, I was so apprehensive that the enemy, who was still in large force on the south side of the Tennessee, might recross and attack the railroad. End quote. What's more, Granger saw beyond the obvious immediate threat of Wheeler and Roddy renewing their attack, and anticipated that Forrest was the dark horse in the situation, suspiciously absent but still well within the ring. 
General A.J. Smith, having been diverted with an entire division out of the region, left a power vacuum that Forrest could easily exploit. Quoting Granger's retrospective report again, which, in light of what would soon occur, I imagine with an air of salty yet restrained smugness. Quote, I might add here that I had some time previously apprehended that General Forrest might also invade Middle Tennessee, inasmuch as Major General Smith's forces had been withdrawn to Missouri and intimated the same to the general commanding the army, but was assured by him that I had nothing to fear from General Forrest. With this assurance, I made the best disposition that occurred to me with my now much reduced command to watch these large forces of the enemy in my immediate front and guard the river and railroad. End quote. Granger, for his part, did make every effort to communicate his apprehension with the high command at Atlanta. On the 14th of September, he wrote to General Whipple, Major General Thomas's assistant adjutant general, quote, I am informed that Wheeler and Roddy are at Cheatham's below Florence, with a force of about 6,000 with a large train, etc. The common rumor of their camp is that they intend to return to Middle Tennessee. Also, that General Smith has gone back to Memphis, and that his infantry has been sent to Potomac and cavalry to Missouri. This is telegraphed to me by General Starkweather, as the report of one of our men who was prisoner at that point and escaped. This will leave Forrest at liberty to join Wheeler. Is he not likely to make this combination? If objectionable, please inform me if Smith has returned to Memphis." End quote. General Thomas did not dismiss Granger's concerns, but forwarded them to Sherman, asking merely, quote, What shall I telegraph to General Granger? End quote. Sherman's response is astonishing. Quote, the general commanding directs me to say that General Smith's forces have been diverted to Missouri by order of Major General Halleck. Also, that he has official information that Forrest and his command reached Mobile on the 8th instant. General Granger, therefore, need apprehend no trouble from any but Roddy, Wheeler, and the parties that have already been in Tennessee. End quote. It is a puzzling irony of history that a figure so accomplished, capable, and ruthlessly insightful as General Sherman, when at the very pinnacle of his acumen, having just bested two Confederate top generals and captured the city of Atlanta, could have been so woefully short-sighted and dismissive of such a grave threat as Forrest, even when given warning. I am reminded of how on the eve of Shiloh, some two and a half years earlier, Sherman did not, quote, apprehend anything like an attack on our position, end quote, despite being on the front lines, and better aware than anyone that the rebel army was lurking just out of sight. Personally, I think a mixture of arrogance and his tendency to focus on the big picture, where he's already playing and winning the offensive game three moves ahead in his mind, created a kind of myopathy, where he underestimated more immediate threats that were right in front of his face. It is, of course, only with the hindsight of history that we have the luxury of such criticism. At the time, one might have been forgiven for thinking that Forrest was safely removed from the scene, and the only threat to the Tennessee Valley was the force of Roddy and Wheeler, who had just been beaten out of Tennessee anyway, and Granger was only a nervous subordinate crying wolf. 
In light of what was soon to come, however, Granger was in fact the canary in the coal mine, and Sherman's haughty dismissal of the threat from Forrest was Whistling Dixie. At least one other superior officer on the scene agreed with Granger's assessment, and that was General Russo. The day after Sherman's response to Granger, Russo himself telegraphed General Thomas, offering much the same advice, explaining, quote, It is certainly the best policy of the enemy, and I believe it their purpose, to assail your communications this side of the Tennessee. Wheeler and Roddy combined without Williams can come with 8,000 men. A.J. Smith's return to Memphis may induce Forrest to join Wheeler. From every indication, I am satisfied that an early raid will be made, and I think the forces now in the district insufficient to prevent the destruction of the roads. There ought to be more cavalry and infantry than I have had control of. End quote. Thomas, for his part, could do little more than nod along, while saying in essence there was nothing he could do, repeating the same false assurances offered to General Granger. Quote, you must make the most you can with the troops you have until we can get reinforcements from the draft. I have no troops that can be spared to send you. Major General Sherman assures me that Forrest is in Mobile. You have two brigades of Tennessee cavalry and five regiments of Indiana cavalry, which, with the dismounted men of General Garrard's division and General Granger's command at Decatur, certainly ought to enable you to whip Wheeler and Roddy combined at any point they may approach the railroad. End quote. And yet, the very next day, September 16th, word began to arrive over the wire to Sherman's headquarters that Forrest was not staying put where he was supposed to. From Memphis, Major General Washburn sent virtually the same telegram to Sherman and Halleck, stating, quote, On the sixth instant, Forrest was at Mobile, having taken some dismounted men there. On the tenth, he was at Okalana, and his effective mounted force were with him and were about moving on a raid somewhere, I think to Middle Tennessee. Look out for your weak points. Nearly half of my cavalry are in Arkansas after Price, and I cannot hold Forrest where he is with the small force now at my command. Smith, Mower, and 100 Days men gone. End quote. Washburn, for his part, was able to do little else than watch as Forrest moved north with stunning swiftness. Rumors had already been reaching Washburn's headquarters for several days about Forrest and his designs, notably from one Brigadier General Edward Hatch, commanding the 1st Division of Cavalry, 16th Army Corps, Army of the Tennessee, who, in six weeks' time, will play a central role in the coming desperate climax of the war in the Shoals, but as of yet was still in the vicinity of Memphis. Hatch states, quote, the force of Forrest was about 800 strong. The men of this force report that they will yet attack Memphis, and that Forrest has promised to take them to Tennessee, and means to have his share of the crops. This, however, may only be camp rumors." The same day Washburn gave notice that Forrest was on the move, Friday, September 16th, Forrest departed Verona, Mississippi, just south of Tupelo, bound for the Tennessee River. His long-awaited raid had thus begun. By Sunday, September 18th, Forrest's command had arrived at Cherokee in what is now Colbert County, Alabama. 
It was the perfect place to launch a raid, as Forrest explained. Quote, Cherokee is the eastern terminus of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, and at this place I had concentrated everything necessary for the complete outfit of my command preparatory to the contemplated move. End quote. The railroad had apparently been repaired to be serviceable enough to Cherokee and thus accessible from any point in southern and central Mississippi by way of the Mobile and Ohio Railroad that Forrest had been able to stockpile supplies without federal interference. Cherokee, as the crow flies, is four miles from the Tennessee River, a very comfortable striking distance while also perfectly shielded from federal gunboats. After two full days of preparation, on the morning of the 21st, the column set into motion and began crossing the Tennessee River, some of them at the exact same location where Wheeler had retreated only 11 days earlier. Forrest here explains the movement on the 21st. Quote, My men being provided with 10 days' rations and everything in readiness, the command left Cherokee at daylight on the morning of the 21st. The artillery, ordnance, and wagons trains were placed under the charge of Major C.W. Anderson of my staff with instructions to be ferried across the Tennessee River at Newport, where boats had already been sent for that purpose. With my troops, I moved down the river to Ross's Ford, or Carlbutt Shoals, and forded with but little difficulty. The artillery and wagon trains were safely and rapidly ferried over and joined the main body of the command five miles west of Florence. End quote. Here I must pause to offer an explanation as to why the artillery and cavalry had to cross the river at two different locations. The answer lies in the peculiar geography of the Tennessee River at the Shoals in the 19th century. In late September, the depth of water at Colbert Shoals was almost certainly no greater than two feet, and in fact was likely substantially less, only a matter of inches. Men could simply cross by going on horseback from one shore to the other, as Forrest stated he, quote, forded with but little difficulty, end quote. However, Wagons and artillery caissons could not practically be hauled across the craggy, uneven bedrock of the riverbed, with its innumerable fissures, outcroppings, and so forth, regardless of the water level, without risking severe damage, and therefore had to cross by ferry. Ferries relied on a deeper river channel to be practicable, and Cheatham's Ferry at Newport was chosen as the location where the artillery and wagon trains were, quote, safely and rapidly ferried over, end quote. The geography of this stretch of river was permanently altered in 1938 by the TVA when the completion of Pickwick Landing Dam inundated Colbert Shoals and Cheatham's Ferry. The rendezvous point, which Forrest says was five miles west of Florence, is roughly the same neighborhood as the more than 6,000-acre John Peters plantation. According to the census in 1860, Peters enslaved 313 men, women, and children, the largest number held by a single individual ever recorded in Lauderdale County. Forrest continues here, describing the timeline of their movements. Quote, the command encamped at Florence, having crossed the river and traveled about 25 miles during the day. On the morning of the 22nd, I moved in the direction of Athens, Alabama. End quote. Though his time in town was brief, it certainly aroused attention. 
The diarist Eliza Weekly notes on the 22nd, quote, More of Forrest's men came into town this morning. We saw him as they passed through. End quote. As Forrest moved east through Lauderdale County, he was joined by reinforcements already in the area in the aftermath of Wheeler's withdrawal, as he here describes. Quote, At Shoal Creek, six miles east of Florence, I was joined by General Roddy's troops under the command of Colonel William A. Johnson, who had previously been ordered to cross the river at Bainbridge and to join me at this place. My entire force now consisted of General Buford's division, composed of Colonels Bell and General Lyon's brigades, and Colonel Kelly's brigade, with General Roddy's troops, commanded by Colonel Johnson, who reported directly to me. These commands constituted an available force of 4,500 men." End quote. By this time, the fact that Roddy had recrossed to the north bank of the river had reached the Union Officer Corps in the vicinity. The day Forrest crossed at Colbert Shoals, September 21st, Starkweather telegraphed Granger, quote, Roddy crossed to this side of the river on Sunday with four regiments at Bainbridge Ferry and moved thence in the direction of Florence, end quote. And Granger further added as he reported to headquarters, quote, Colonel Spaulding sends following information that Roddy, with three regiments, is encamped at the upper mills on Shoal Creek. Roddy has pressed the mills and is pressing all the grain in that vicinity. Colonel Spaulding will proceed immediately with 10th, 12th, and 3rd Tennessee Cavalry to drive him out of the country, end quote. Notably absent from any correspondence at this moment is the name of General Forrest. It would appear that Roddy crossing in advance of Forrest at just the right moment, like a sleight of hand, diverted the Federal's attention from the larger movement right under their noses. Owing to his hypervigilance, Granger was quick to respond to this rebel foray, even as he was unaware that his fears about Forrest were coming true, as he recalled on October 10th, quote, Colonel Minnis, 3rd Tennessee Cavalry at Athens, I ordered to Rogersville and Lexington to cooperate with Colonel Spaulding, who left Pulaski on the afternoon of the 21st for Shoal Creek to look for the enemy there. I had a few days previously sent a squadron of cavalry to Florence to watch the enemy's movements opposite that place. End quote. Once Forrest was joined by Colonel Johnson of Roddy's command near what is now called Killen, but then was known as Masonville, he began to feel forward carefully and ordered a first strategic strike to cripple the network ahead of his grander designs of destruction. Quote, after moving on to Masonville, I halted and ordered up the wagon train for the purpose of furnishing Colonel Johnson's troops with ammunition and rations. About 10 o'clock at night, I ordered the 20th Regiment Tennessee Cavalry under command of Lieutenant Colonel Jesse A. Forrest and the 14th Tennessee Cavalry, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel White of Kelly's Brigade, to move during the night to McDonald's Station between Decatur and Athens and there capture a government corral said to be located near that place and also to destroy the railroad and telegraph line." End quote. These initial movements were immediately noticed by the Federal Command, as Russo here summarized on September 22nd. 
Quote, a party of the enemy struck the railroad near Athens at about 5 p.m. yesterday, since when the wires have been down. General Granger telegraphs via Stevenson that another party appeared about six miles north of Decatur. General Starkweather telegraphs this morning that a courier just in from Captain Slatery, 3rd Tennessee Cavalry, with report that a rebel force 3,000 strong passed through Rogersville at 10 a.m. yesterday in direction of the railroad. End quote. Even as they were well aware of the rebel movements toward the railroad, astonishingly, there is still no mention whatsoever of General Forrest being the one in command. Not even Granger fully realized yet the import of what was taking place, reporting almost nonchalantly on the evening of the 23rd, quote, Enemy on the road two miles from Athens, another party this evening six miles from Decatur, 200 strong, burnt house of Jack Harris, have sent 3rd Tennessee and 102nd Ohio in pursuit, will leave early in the morning with additional troops to look after rebels. The force can't be large. General Starkweather, with his force, has left for Athens. End quote. At virtually the same moment he was writing, Forrest himself was arriving on the scene to personally oversee the capture of Athens, the first movement in a frightful symphony of stunning and humiliating upsets for the Federal Army he would orchestrate over the coming week. The havoc was only about to begin. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll see Forrest's raid take on a frightful new level of potency as multiple Union garrisons crumble under the weight of his assaults and a mad scramble begins to get the better of him. Please stay with us. On the evening of Friday, September 23rd, 1864, all of General Granger's available cavalry, 280 men, left Decatur under command of Colonel Prosser in the direction of Athens, essentially to investigate and drive off any rebels they found causing mischief there, completely unaware of what they were up against. Following them was a detachment of 360 infantry of the 102nd Ohio and the 18th Michigan regiments, led by Lieutenant Colonel Elliott, quote, to protect the road and reinforce Athens, end quote. Granger did not know that Athens was actually already surrounded by a numerically superior force commanded by General Forrest himself. Colonel Prosser encountered rebel pickets on the southern outskirts of Athens and drove them toward the town, whereupon Prosser discovered Forrest in full force outnumbering him, he figured, nearly twenty to one. According to Granger, Colonel Prosser then, quote, extricated his command from this position with considerable skill, end quote, and arrived back in Decatur at 6 a.m., sounding the alarm. Even so, it appears the prospect of his earlier fears coming so blatantly true was just too inconceivable for General Granger. As Prosser returned with the startling news on the morning of the 24th, Granger telegraphed Major General Thomas in disbelief, stating, quote, Colonel Prosser, 2nd Tennessee Cavalry, states as his positive conviction that the force at Athens is that of Forrest, and that it numbered already up and more coming, 3,000 or 4,000. I can't think this is so. End quote. 
He then elaborates on all the many precautionary scouting expeditions he had sent out, none of which had reported so monumental a force in the vicinity, which gave him what proved to be a false sense of security. And given what we saw last time about the wild rumors that spread false whereabouts of commanders, Granger quite reasonably dismisses the reports of Forrest as tall tales. Quote, I had also sent 100 mounted men from Pulaski to Florence some days previously to look after the enemy. They sent back word of Roddy having crossed as also other forces, but not a word of Forrest. I think it probable the enemy assumed to belong to Forrest to give credit to their statements of a very large force." End quote. Granger's experience was working against him here. As he moved forward, he reported coolly, quote, We have all sorts of rumors from Athens. End quote. Despite the presumed silence of those scouting expeditions, word was indeed beginning to pour in through the grapevine that Forrest, with an enormous force, was north of the Tennessee River. Granger immediately telegraphed Rousseau at Nashville the summary of Prosser's intelligence. Quote, From the best information that I can obtain, the force in and about Athens belongs to Forrest's command. Colonel Prosser, who returned this morning, reports them constantly increasing. He made eight prisoners, some of them belonging to the second rebel Tennessee. They crossed at Florence and represent that they are commanded by Forrest in person. One of the blockhouses was summoned to surrender by General Forrest. The force is unquestionably a large one. The prisoners state that Forrest told them at Akalana that they would have force enough to destroy both railroads and stay in Tennessee as long as he pleased. Colonel Prosser is satisfied that General Forrest is with them in person. I have heard nothing from the 3rd Tennessee, which I ordered down to Elk River, or from Colonel Spaulding, who left for Shoal Creek day before yesterday. End quote. Russo forwarded this dispatch virtually verbatim to headquarters at Atlanta, adding a clarification of his own. Quote, Colonel Spaulding sent courier yesterday from Squire Wilson's on Military Road, who reached Pulaski at 2 p.m. today with report that Forrest, with 8,000 men at eight pieces of artillery, passed toward Athens from direction of Florence on the 22nd and camped at Rogersville that night. End quote. Squire Wilson's, by the way, almost certainly refers to the plantation of John Wilson in what is now St. Florine, at the time known as Wilson Crossroads. Colonel Spaulding was, to my estimation, the first federal officer north of the Tennessee River to realize that Forrest himself was across the river with several thousand men. The capture of Athens, Alabama, was described in exquisitely precise detail in Forrest's official report. His description allows a modern historian to reconstruct very closely the disposition of his forces as he invested the town. I will include an image in the description of the rebel forces at Athens on the night of September 23rd. On the morning of the 24th, the Union garrison hunkered in their breastworks, would have become perfectly aware that they were now completely surrounded. At 7 a.m. on Saturday, September 24th, Forrest's artillery opened fire on the fort, and a general forward movement began. Forrest could see that a bloodbath awaited them if they should attempt to take the fortress by force. 
while Colonel Kelly held off the federal reinforcements under Colonel Prosser and Lieutenant Colonel Elliott now coming up from Decatur, Forrest sent a staff officer under flag of truce to negotiate a surrender of the garrison with the Union commander, Colonel Wallace Campbell, commanding the 110th USCI, a regiment of black servicemen. The communique which reached Colonel Campbell just after 8 a.m. is preserved in the official records and goes as follows. Quote, I demand an immediate and unconditional surrender of the entire force and all government stores and property at this post. I have a sufficient force to storm and take your works, and if I am forced to do so, the responsibility of the consequences must rest with you. Should you, however, accept the terms, all white soldiers shall be treated as prisoners of war, and the Negroes return to their masters. A reply is requested immediately. End quote. The black men in uniform at Athens that morning stared not only death in the face, but the prospect of being returned in chains to slavery. This first demand to surrender was refused. Yet Forrest tried again to avoid an engagement and requested a parley with Colonel Campbell in person. Campbell recalled, quote, General Forrest told me he was determined to take the place, that his force was sufficiently large, and have it he would, and if he was compelled to storm the works, it would result in the massacre of the entire garrison." End quote. Thoughts of the massacre of Fort Pillow would have been at the forefront of everyone's mind. Campbell says he was now given the chance to review Forrest's entire available force, to prove that his little garrison didn't stand a chance. He accepted the offer, if nothing else, as a stalling tactic. He says, quote, It was now 11 a.m. I had been dilly-dallying with General Forrest since 8 a.m., expecting reinforcements would be sent from Decatur. End quote. Those paltry reinforcements, Lieutenant Colonel Elliott, had already been captured. With no sign of reinforcements on the horizon, and with the prospect of the slaughter of his command, Colonel Campbell surrendered to General Forrest at midday on Saturday, September 24, 1864, and 571 Federal soldiers became prisoners of war. More than 70% of them were black. Three weeks after their capture, before being paroled, every officer signed a statement condemning Campbell's decision to surrender the fort. Quote, Colonel Campbell, after reviewing the forces of the enemy, returned to the fort, saying, The jig is up, pull down the flag, thus surrendering the best fortification on the line of the Nashville and Decatur Railroad. End quote. The letter then describes, in stirring emotion, the gallantry of the garrison, and the desire of the men to stand and fight as free men rather than surrender and live as chattel. Quote, we also feel it our duty to make mention of the bearing and disposition of the soldiers in the fort, both white and black. It was everything that any officer could wish of any set of men. So far from there being any disposition on the part of the men to surrender or to avoid a fight, it was just the reverse. Officers had to exert all their authority, even to threatening to shoot their own men, to restrain them from exposing themselves. The soldiers were anxious to try conclusions with General Forrest, believing that in such a work they could not be taken by ten times their number. 
When told that the fort had been surrendered and that they were prisoners, they could scarcely believe themselves, but with tears demanded that the fight should go on, preferring to die in the fort they had made to being transferred to the tender mercies of General Forrest and his men. End quote. Colonel Campbell was lambasted for his cowardice, but in my opinion, realistically, a surrender very likely saved the lives of the men of his command. In his official report, he shifts much of the blame onto Colonel Prosser for failing to do more on the evening of the 23rd to keep Forrest from so fully investing the town. Truthfully, the responsibility was high up the chain of command for leaving only a few hundred men here and there to hold their own against a force of several thousand who were allowed to slip completely undetected despite early and frequent warnings north of the Tennessee River to operate as they pleased. The capture of Athens was merely the overture to an opera of havoc. Forrest did not halt, as now the entire federal command was doubtless aware of his presence, and his advantage depended upon surprise and staying a step ahead. Quote, In a few hours after the surrender of Athens, I moved with my command toward Pulaski. Four miles north of Athens, another blockhouse with a garrison of 30 men was surrounded and captured. The trestle, railroad, and blockhouse at this point were all in blazing ruins 20 minutes after we reached them. End quote. Throughout the day on the 24th and into the 25th, Granger was scrambling to collect all the scattered reinforcements he could without vulnerably exposing his own position while telegraphing the high command at Atlanta all the available details as soon as they became known, including whether or not it was even truly General Forrest in command. While still reeling from the reality of the capture of Athens, its garrison, and Lieutenant Colonel Elliott's detachment, news reached Granger that another Union garrison had surrendered to Forrest at the railroad trestle over Sulphur Creek. The fighting at Sulphur Trestle was intense. The fortifications withstood a two-hour bombardment from Forrest's artillery, which resulted in heavy loss. The Federal officer in command, Colonel Lathrop, was killed in the bombardment, and his successor, Lieutenant Colonel Minnis, who would ultimately surrender the fort, was severely wounded. Having expended all their ammunition, and without any outside assistance, they had little other choice, facing the same grim specter of another Fort Pillow if they refused to surrender. Approximately 800 men were taken prisoner and shipped off, just as Colonel Campbell's garrison had been the day before. Granger wondered, in his retrospective report, why Brigadier General Starkweather didn't come to their aid from Pulaski, especially considering, by his reckoning, thanks to Colonel Spaulding's early intelligence, Starkweather knew of Forrest's presence and design on the railroads before Granger. A scandalous clue as to why is found in the official records, which may explain why Starkweather was not more proactive. An ominous dispatch was received at Nashville the day of the surrender at Sulphur Creek and relayed from General Russo to General Thomas. Its contents are made all the more disturbing in light of the disaster which unfolded only hours after it was sent. It is dated at Pulaski, 4 o'clock a.m. It states, quote, 
If you wish to save the railroad and the command between here and Athens, you must send by special train an officer to take command of these forces. General Starkweather is totally unfit. He is drunk and has been so for some time past. We do this from a sense of duty. End quote. It is signed by Colonel Spaulding, Colonel G.W. Jackson, Major Virgil Lyon, and William Payne. Rousseau informed Thomas that he had relieved Starkweather of command, but lamented that he had nothing to spare to come to aid the pleas of the signatories. Rousseau and Granger both faced an impossible situation, trying to summon reinforcements to take on Forrest when they barely had men enough to hold their own ground a fact which Forrest was demonstrating handily multiple times within 24 hours, and he was still on the move. The telegraph lines were absolutely blazing with messages throughout Sunday the 25th. As the day progressed, a consensus was reached that all reinforcements arriving from Atlanta by rail would be sent to Nashville rather than Huntsville or Decatur. Granger's telegram to Russo that afternoon lays out the complex strategic predicament tying his hands at that moment. Quote, it is now 1.40 p.m., and only 700 of the 2,500 men promised to be sent yesterday from Chattanooga have reported at Stevenson, and they cannot possibly arrive here before 5 o'clock this evening. We cannot leave here before sunset. Our force will then be only 1,100 infantry and 250 cavalry. To wait for the balance of the 2,500, we cannot leave before evening with the present condition of the roads. We can't reach Elk River before the day after tomorrow, and if the enemy destroy all the bridges, we will be delayed half a day getting over. Under these circumstances, it appears to me to be far better that the troops now coming be stopped at Stevenson and sent around by Nashville, as by that route they can reach Pulaski with no marching by eight o'clock at furthest tomorrow morning. A thousand or twelve hundred men at least should be left at this post. We have no idea of their strength, but the enemy is outside our pickets in line of battle, displaying very considerable force, and it is not improbable that Wheeler, who was certainly at Moulton yesterday, may have left a portion of his force to demonstrate against this place and to try and avail himself of any chance to attack it. If they are in force, it is absolutely necessary we fall back and hold this position." End quote. Virtually every commander along the railroads faced a similar predicament. Having barely men enough to hold their own ground, much less take the offensive, anxiously waiting for reinforcements, hoping they would arrive before Forrest. At 3.40 a.m., as news reached him at Pulaski that Forrest was advancing north of Athens and Colonel Spaulding could not hope to hold his position at Elk River against them, Colonel G.W. Jackson implored to Nashville, quote, Colonel Spaulding's forces and mine are entirely inadequate. For God's sake, send the reinforcements, end quote. Starkweather was far more terse in his tone, but no less desperate. Quote, Order General Croxton and Colonel Jones to move at once, or they will be too late as it is. Hurry them up. I need them badly. End quote. I suppose Starkweather had not yet learned that he was relieved of duty on charges of drunkenness. When news did reach him at some point on Sunday, he was naturally defensive, and the tension of the moment shows through in the bravado of his response. Quote, 
The charges made against me are false, as all my staff officers and others connected with me will testify. Everyone here wishes me to command. Men and officers are beseeching me. Let me fight the troops, and if anything is wrong, I am ready to answer for it as a general officer. If not, give me leave to retire to Nashville, or give me orders of some kind so that I may know what to do. I don't wish to remain here without a command, although I will take a musket if necessary and fight as a common soldier." End quote. Besides bravado, in the absence of reinforcements, commanders had at their disposal certain other limited creative means to at least diminish Forrest's impact, i.e. sabotage. As he left Nashville, again headed back down the line to Pulaski, General Russo gave Major General Milroy the following orders, quote, have the citizens along the railroad from within six miles of this place to Bridgeport remove at once all fences within 600 yards of the road, except those around cornfields, and those you will have removed as soon as it can be done without great hardship on the people. This order is given to put out of reach of the enemy fuel for burning the road. If the order is not carried out by the citizens, have it done by burning the fences where they stand." End quote. And ironically, orders were even given to destroy the very bridges that Forrest was bent on destroying himself, as Granger here informed Russo. Quote, I have telegraphed General Starkweather that if the enemy have not yet crossed Elk River, he will destroy the bridge, as the elk must be too high now to be crossed. End quote. In Granger's estimation, it was clearly more important to retard Forrest's rampage by any means possible than to preserve what was essentially an auxiliary railroad line. The reinforcements would arrive by way of Chattanooga and Nashville by now anyway. As news continued to develop that Forrest was now north of Elk River, commanders between Chattanooga and Nashville began to fear that their posts would soon be targeted as well. It was the same refrain. Brigadier General Horatio Van Cleve telegraphed from Murfreesboro on Sunday night, quote, What force has Forrest? Is he moving this way? I have not over 700 men to defend these extensive works. I should have additional regiment of infantry. I have telegraphed General Milroy to this effect, End quote. And so... By the end of the day on Sunday the 25th, mobilizations were being made from Nashville and from Atlanta. The 2nd Division, 4th Army Corps, was en route to Chattanooga by orders of General Sherman to immediately be forwarded to Nashville, and gunboats had been ordered up the Tennessee to watch the shoals. The scramble to meet Forrest's threat was on. By Monday morning, the big boss, Ulysses S. Grant, was addressing the situation. It signified that Forrest's raid had now ballooned into far more than a nuisance and constituted a serious threat to the progress of the entire holistic Union strategy. He telegraphed to General Sherman, quote, It will be better to drive Forrest from Middle Tennessee as a first step and do anything else that you may feel your force sufficient for. End quote. He's here making reference to a telegram from the previous day, where Sherman is already thinking about his next move. Quote, 
hood seems to be moving, as it were, to the Alabama line, leaving open to me the road to Macon, as also to Augusta, but his cavalry is busy on our roads. A force, number estimated as high as 8,000, is reported to have captured Athens, Alabama, as also a regiment of 350 sent to their relief. I have sent Newton's division up to Chattanooga in cars, and will send another division to Rome. If I were sure that Savannah would soon be in our possession, I would be tempted to make for Milledgeville and Augusta, but I must secure what I have. End quote. Sherman, though he knew the force being brought to bear in Middle Tennessee was formidable, still believed that the troops to the rear could gather sufficient strength to oppose Forrest. They would simply have to, because Sherman was not going to divert attention from his own opus of destruction in Georgia. He succinctly expressed this view to Grant on Monday the 26th, quote, Our armies are much reduced, and if I send back much more, I will not be able to threaten Georgia much. There are men enough to the rear to whip Forrest, but they are necessarily scattered to defend the road. Superhuman efforts will be made to break my road. End quote. Even as he called on Grant to send new recruits and furloughed regiments from the Ohio Valley to Nashville post-haste, he discussed with Halleck whether Savannah, Georgia, or Montgomery, Alabama would be the next target in the chain of dominoes to fall. Halleck favored the latter option, but stated, quote, your mode of conducting war is just the thing we now want. We have tried the kid glove policy long enough. End quote. Despite the current setback in Tennessee, one could not argue with Sherman's results. He was without a doubt the man to break the will of the Confederacy. Sherman barely mentions Forrest's raid in his memoir. His eyes were already further down the line. Any nuisance so far to the rear, ironically, would only serve to further convince Sherman that he would have to break away entirely from long, cumbersome lines of supply and place the burden of subsisting his massive army squarely upon the shoulders of the southern people whose misfortune it was to reside along his line of march. Of course, as we've seen already many times before, the people of the Tennessee Valley by now were all too familiar with the crushing hardship of subsisting armies, friend and foe, and soon they will be pushed to the very limit of human endurance. Join us next time as we follow the second act of Forrest's Raid, meeting resistance from Russo and no longer enjoying the same element of surprise that previously worked to his advantage. We'll see how the Federal Army mobilized in the Tennessee Valley to neutralize Forrest's threat, ahead of a very fateful movement further to the south, which will shift the balance of operations and see the shoals of the Tennessee River become the hotspot of the war in the West as events only continue to escalate. Thank you so much for joining me.